the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hi, I'm Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening to the Town Hall Review Podcast, where we bring you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Our podcast is brought to you through partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy and ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom. Here's a piece that I trust you'll enjoy. Christopher Caldwell, his book came out two days ago. The book is perfectly and aptly titled The Age of Entitlement. It's exactly what we live in. Publishers Weekly, which is not on the right, I can tell you, because they've reviewed my books unfavorably, wrote, It is the sharpest and most insightful conservative critique of mainstream politics in years. The Age of Entitlement, America since the 60s, brief and powerful. Christopher Caldwell, welcome to my show. Well, it's great to be back, Dennis. Thank you, sir. All right, I will ask you the question I ask almost every author. What is the thesis of your book? Well, I, I don't know that I would call it a, a thesis in the sense it's not a it's a it's a narrative. It's not a um, it's not a manifesto. But what it is is, is the story of how, um, starting, you could say, with the assassination of John F. Kennedy, <clears throat> the country turned down a certain road, and the most important early step in this. Um, for all its positive um, results, was the civil rights legislation of the 1960s. Um, now, civil rights was a, you know, segregation in the South, which civil rights was in- intended to break, was a very big problem. I think we, uh, you know, it required extraordinary measures to, uh, to, to, to break, measures that were actually inconsistent with a lot of things in our Constitution, like freedom of association and freedom to make one's own election laws. But we did it in the service of solving this problem, which was fine. The problem is that these remedies, these powers that were given to the federal government, did not go away when the problem of de jure segregation did. And they lived on and they've become sort of like a, a super tool for creating reform and for destabilizing American institutions. So basically we have a, the 60s gave us a second constitution, a very powerful constitution that can be used to overrule the first. Wow. So I want to ask you, I have no idea what you'll answer. Was Barry Goldwater's opposition to the legislation in retrospect correct? You know, that is not the... um, it's not the kind of book where I, I sort of make that argument. But what I say is that, um, yes, a lot of these arguments early on, not just by Barry Goldwater, um, but also by Robert Bork, um, particularly concerning um, freedom of association and um, the amount uh, and the particular new powers that gave to Washington, a lot of those arguments were correct. 
That's what I've come to, and I was a passionate advocate. I was a kid, but I was aware. But uh, the way it has been used and metastasized, that's, so that is one of the things that you describe. The, there was a new, it's an interesting way of putting it, a new constitution as of the 1960s. Is that correct? Yes. Right. Yes. So what what are the what is the content of the new constitution? Well, uh, it's it's really basically a set of, of of measures. It's the things that were in it's both the things that were in the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the things that it made possible. I mean, now the things that were in it were, let's say, the addition of um, of offices of civil rights in the executive branch, which could make rules that effectively became laws. There was a term, I mean, you could you have something like bilingual education, which no one ever voted on. There was never a law passed to give us bilingual education. What you had was a Supreme Court decision um, which was noticed by the you know office, office of civil rights in um, in what was then the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, and that became a set of um, guidelines known as the Lao guidelines, which mandated um, bilingual education, which has never been gotten rid of. You know, um, so th- these are some of the things that were in the legislation, but there were also the things that the legislation made possible, like lawsuits against business for uh, new crimes against against um, uh, uh, fair hiring. And these did not, once the Supreme Court began to sort of leg- began to uh, uh, adjudicate around it, these did not require businesses to be acting in a racist way. All these required were for businesses to be acting in such a way that it had what the court deemed a, a negative effect or headwinds. So the combination of um, the combination of of new powers for Washington and new interpretations that left people um, vulnerable to lawsuits, and on top of that, the ability of Washington to um, overturn election laws to um, uh, to 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 readjudicate settled um, criminal cases. It really it really eroded a lot of powers that um, uh, throughout the country that people had had think of as essential to our constitutional freedoms. Why do you think Americans have so widely, almost universally, but not obviously, but so widely accepted this transformation of their of their society and culture? I, you know, I've given this a bit of thought. It's very hard to, you know, break an association that you once have in your mind. So if you think about yourself as a supporter of um, civil rights in the 1960s, you have these set of, you know, inter- interventionist procedures um, by the, the, the Supreme Court and by the Washington bureaucracy that were meant to break, you know, the country's great historic crime. I mean, the great evil wrought by the country. And if it stayed just there, I think that that there would be a unanimous sort of, I think the the civil rights would be considered unproblematic. 
The problem came when, you know, the, the, these tactics were taken to other things. They were taken to securing bilingual ballots, when they were taken to um, securing gay marriage, to securing transgender bathrooms. And as it moved on to different terrain, people did not... Uh, people did not alter the assessments they'd made about right. civil rights law when it just applied to segregation. Right. You, you know, I, I once spoke uh, at, in Florida uh, about eight years ago. I, I went to speak on behalf of uh, Mitt Romney at a synagogue in Florida, and I opened it up, and I'm Jewish, so I could get away with it, so to speak. And I and I said, you know, hello everybody, and I'm here with some uh, difficult news. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt died. Ah, so uh, it's right up your alley. There's an inability to reassess what my ideals have wrought. Right. That, You've got it. Yeah, I know, I know. It's very problematic. Now, you break up the book into race, sex, war, debt, diversity, winners, losers. So I want to talk to you a little about them. And let's begin, needless to say, with sex. What do you have to say about right. that? Well, um, I, I, I look at, at women's rights mostly. To I look at you know, two stages of the transformation out of using civil rights law for race into using it for other things. And so that that first section describes the way uh, Gloria Steinem and others sort of explicitly modeled their way of, um, of, of, of changing women's role, explicitly modeled it on the civil rights laws. And it was a very, as you know, if you've ever read any sort of feminist um, literature, it's really a very poor fit because, you, you know, the, the uh, men and women, there is no such thing as segregation between, you know, men and women, except in very limited uh, areas. It's a very different, it's a very different kind of relationship, the relationship between the sexes and the relationship between races. But a striking thing is how just how quickly it wrought a major social change. So you ha you divide the uh, your book into uh, these chapters here, race, sex, and war, debt, diversity, winners, losers. So we're talking about sex. So the your book is descriptive rather than analytical. Is that correct? I think it's highly analytical. Okay, then I good. When I say it's... The, when the, I say it's when I say it's not a, I just mean it's not a manifesto. Right. I'm not, okay. I'm not banging the drum. All right. So I'm uh, telling you what happened. I understand. Well, but uh, but you're not just telling us what happened. You're analyzing what happened, which is great. So right. And right. so the you were saying you know not many people have read the, the you know the feminist the authors. I I read as a service to my uh, my work purely uh, it was an act of sheer heroism on my part i read the entire uh, feminine mystique by betty friedan and ah. it, it is a good thing that there was no sharp object in the in my vicinity because i would have slipped my wrists the book is so relentlessly depressing the life of the american woman as described in betty friedan's feminine mystique 
was hell. Well, yeah, I'm sorry to hear it. Uh, you know, the thing that struck me about about women in, in, in the 60s was how quick and strange the the, the transition of, of their lives was. So I, I, I gathered, I was able to gather, thanks to a, a pollster friend, a good deal of sort of original polling about women's attitudes um, in the 1960s. And one, um, one thing you discover is that very few women knew who these major feminists were. So, so even in, in 1971, when you asked women whether they respected Gloria Steinem, for instance, you know, 22% said they respected her, 4% said they did not, but 65% said they'd never heard of her, okay? Mm-hmm. And, but, but, the, but the big overall impression that I get uh, looking at this is in the early 60s, well into the mid-60s, married women and unmarried women uh, agreed on absolutely everything. There was barely a percentage points differences, difference to how they reacted to any question, like whether it's all right for a woman to commit adultery, whether there's any such thing as women's intuition. They, they, they responded exactly the same way. And so there was this sense in the 1960s that there was such a thing as there's just a wisdom about life that was the same whether you were five years old or 40 years old or 80 years old, and it was the same whether you were male or female or married or unmarried. Today, by contrast, there are, there, there are, it's hard to think of two other groups in the country that differ so much on these questions as married and unmarried women. Yeah, this and I know I point that out to my listeners. That is why the left uh, has in its in its in its interest that women not marry. I'm not saying they're they're advocating that. I'm merely saying they benefit from women not marrying. That in, they benefit in the sense that the, the children of traditional families tend to be conservative voters? No, they benefit in exactly what you were saying. Married women are more conservative, and single women yeah. are more on the left. Absolutely. So, so Absolutely. A, 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 a Democrat has to be really altruistic to want America's women to all get married and have children, because they'll lose a lot of votes. Mm-hmm. That's right. In the same way that a Republican has to be altruistic to favor high uh, uh, immigration, it's uh, um, uh, from a strictly electoral viewpoint. But I, but so I think you get an idea of some of the things that I'm doing in the book. I mean, you notice this divergence. I mean, women used to be unified around a certain idea of um, of, of what womanhood is and what life is, and then sometime in the '60s they diverged as if they were living in two different countries, as if they were living under two different constitutions. And the idea that we have two constitutions is really the central one in this book. Mm-hmm. So t- talk to me. I don't know if you cover this. I will be reading your book, incidentally. Uh, that's how important I think it is. And I want to. I, I love analyses of the 60s to the present. But let's talk about men. I don't know if, again, I don't know if you do, uh, Masculine when I grew up and masculine today, today it's toxic masculinity. When I grew up, it was the best thing a man could be is masculine. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Um, now, that is something I look at uh, quite a lot. And one of the things that I think formed the backdrop to the 1960s was this idea of masculinity that, um, that you're talking about. And it was basically... Uh, it was basically the ideal of masculinity that came out of the, out of the military in World War II. Um, and you need to think about where the country was at the time. We just, we'd come out of a Great Depression. You know, the leadership class of the United States had not exactly been on a winning streak when we went into World War II, okay? Then we go into World War II. We defeat totalitarianism on two continents. We invent the most powerful weapon the world has ever seen. We come out of World War II, and we, you know, for a while we're making 50% of the world's manufactured goods. And it seems like the military really knows how to get things done. Now, there are good things and bad things about that. You know, among the bad things are, you know, there's a certain kind of uniformity in the way people build high schools and that sort of thing. I think that, that along with the good of the GI Bill, I think it wound up probably pushing a number of women um, out of universities. Um, and I think that's part of what, that's a lot of what Betty Friedan was complaining about. Uh, I did think as a kid, I mean, it was before my time, but I watched his movies, John Wayne. I thought he was a good image. I don't, I don't know. I didn't know him in personal life, but the good image in the movies of what a man should be. Would, would, would uh, he go over well with young men today? Oh, I didn't put you on. How do you like that? All right, now you're on. Sorry, sorry. now you're on. Start again. I think that men today are kind of, um, they're not, they don't fit as easily into communities as they used to, so I think that they're sort of, they don't really have a role. I think that, um, Actually, a lot of these isolated men, uh, young men who look at, you know, they kind of surf around the in- Internet, they pick up a little here, a little there. I don't think it's impossible that they look at John Wayne and think he really was a pretty admirable fellow. Well, that's interesting. God, I hope you're right. Because you, you, yeah. you worry if there are any John Waynes coming up, so to speak, uh, in the next generation. What about debt? Well, What's your, what, is your, uh, what do you write about debt? About debt? Well, this is a slightly more, um, this is a more complicated thing. I think, um, you know, I, I, I believe in a lot of ways, when I get to the 1970s, uh, to make a long story short, I look at some of the, you know, the cultural things going on in, uh, in the 1970s, the praise of the, of the lone trucker, you know, as like, as a sort of a, a cowboy figure, um, there's sort of a growing sort of defense of the flag. You had a lot of things going on that, particularly as the decade went on, make the 70s look like one of the most conservative decades in American history. I think they're much misunderstood. I think that Ronald Reagan was in many ways a natural culmination of the 1970s. Um, uh, but you had a you had, what was going on in the late 70s, I think, was a, a lot of these experiments of the 1960s, which I described, in the three areas that I describe in the book, race, sex, and war, um, had really begun to fail badly. 
Um, you had, you know, you had crime, the ERA, Vietnam. I think Americans had a had a sense that 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 the experiments of the 1960s had to be brought to an end. And Reagan came to Washington. Now it's a it's a sort of a complicated story, but I think that all of these things, all of the cultural uh, let's call them uh, innovations of the 1960s, were so well institutionalized and so entrenched in the Washington bureaucracy that they were not possible to get rid of. And what happened is that you were running that 1960s great society order, but people weren't willing to pay for it. And so we wound up paying for two social orders at once. That is, the two constitutions each had their their social order. So you you could have the social order that existed before the 1960s, but you had to pay for it yourself, and that unfortunately required the country to borrow. And so did the second revolution, or the second society, also yes. cost a fortune. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Well, I'm just saying that we we wanted two incompatible things. But so would you summarize it as guns and butter? Yes. Well, you know, it wasn't really guns and butter. It was sort of um, welfare and low taxes, maybe, by the time we got to, mm-hmm. you know, our own era. But I, but as long as you could do that, um, it was possible to sort of pretend that there was no underlying conflict. But as debt got to be more of a problem around 2008 uh, and thereafter, then people began to realize that there might only be room for one social order in this country, and mm. people began to polarize and get very obstreperous. Mm. Mm. Well, that's why people need to read the book. It's The Age of Entitlement, America Since the 60s. Christopher Caldwell, thank you so much. Where do you live? I live in Washington, D.C. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Massachusetts. Well, all right. I hope hope we meet. Uh, Thank you, Dennis. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming in today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. They are preparing grounded leaders who are impacting public policy and serving in the public square. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you enjoy your podcast, take a moment, tell a friend to subscribe today. This is Owen Strand for townhall.com. The death of basketball star Kobe Bryant has shocked the world, truly the world. Bryant, one of the top five basketball players of all time by many estimates, was just 41 years old. More tragic still, his 13-year-old daughter, Gianna, died at his side. Seven other people perished in the crash. Bryant soared in his career. He won five NBA championships, many awards, and became fantastically wealthy. Yet after personal trouble early in his career, Bryant committed himself to his family. He was, by all accounts, a doting father to his four girls, and he and his wife, Vanessa, worked hard to strengthen their union. As a man, Bryant needed what many men need. He needed a family. He pursued excellence and found it in his calling. Kobe's days are over. This life goes fast. We must number our days and prize what matters most. Man knows not his time. I'm Owen Strand. The Pepperdine School of Public Policy, America's unique graduate leadership degree. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu.